in order to be able to save the world in 10 years from now, we need to see year 10 as a company. So we need to profitable, be profitable on the way. We need to serve our customers. We need to kind of develop our business so that we are relevant to the world still and we can be part of the solution. And the company needs to earn that right each and every year. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is the Climate 21 podcast, the number one podcast showcasing best practices in climate emissions reductions. And I'm your host, Global Vice President for SAP, Tom Raftery. Climate 21 is the name of an initiative by SAP to allow our customers calculate, report and reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. In this Climate 21 podcast, I will showcase best practices and thought leadership by SAP, by our customers, by our partners, and by our competitors, if they're game, in climate emissions reductions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice to be sure you don't miss any episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Climate 21 podcast. My name is Tom Raftery with SAP, and with me on the show today, I have my special guest, Peter. Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Peter Geiger, hello, Tom. I'm the Group Chief Risk Officer of Zurich Insurance Group. Fantastic. Now, in the last number of episodes over the last couple of months, Peter, I've had some, you know, various stakeholders in, in this space on. I've had people from the London Stock Exchange Group, you know, people selling green bonds. I've had uh, people from JP Morgan, etc. Uh, the insurance industry is somebody who hasn't been on before. So th- th- this is great to get the insurance industry's perspective because, you know, we're seeing lots of impacts of climate. And this is obviously something that the insurance industry is, you know, dealing with day in, day out. And so l- let me just throw that straight at you straight away. You know, the, how is climate affecting the insurance industry? Well, certainly in one obvious way, which is through the exposure to various property risks. Although that's a bit the blurred uh, area, because don't forget weather beats climate each and every year. Mm-hmm. But weather will follow climate in the long run, uninvitably. And that's a bit what we're seeing Uh, the professional insurers very clearly see a trend with increased uh, loss loads. And part of that is basically more extreme weather events, more frequent, more extreme weather events. Uh, I mean, you read the newspapers. If you get a 100-year event every year, that should make you think. and and that's where, that's where we see it at the forefront in our business and uh, kind of very clearly materializing and and i'm not saying that each or every or any of the events give you an indication but the trends are clearly there and does i mean if the events are getting bigger or happening more often or both does that i mean that's going to hit you hard and of course you have to make profit. So does that mean as customers, either business or personal, our our, uh, costs are going to increase? Well, insurance is is the many paying for the few. Yeah. Uh, You spread spread the risk. Our job is to spread the risk, to diversify the risks. But we we don't actually magically get rid of the risk. So if losses occur, losses will be kind of factored into next year's premium. 
And and by that, ultimately, we're all paying for the increased loads. So it's very much in our financial interest to not have climate change. Thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but look, it's when we pay, it's actually too late. Honestly, I mean, in, in each and every area of life, loss prevention is so much more effective than fixing the damage. And, and climate change is, is no different than that. Uh, kind of building a dam is much more effective than paying for the flood. So that's why resilience is, is a big theme for us. That's why we're working with our clients to help them increase their resilience. Uh, because the best outcome is always, always not to have a loss. Having an insurance paying for it is only second best. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Fair enough. And I mean, what, what's Zurich's kind of strategic risk perspective on climate change? Well, uh, f- first, first of all, I think a risk is something that is high, that is uncertain, mm-hmm. uh, that you don't know about. I think I, I'd, I'd like to stress at the beginning, uh, climate change is, is as such not a risk. We take it as a given. This is happening. Uh, and, and so the risk around is how it will exactly look like how big will the globe how big will the impact be how much global warming are we going to see how at what stage can we manage it when do we get it under control what are the transition effects uh, what's the impact for example on biodiversity mm-hmm. will some of the ecosystems break because we all know that ecosystems don't show a, a linear deterioration pattern they show cliff patterns and, and at one stage they'll fall over the cliff and, and it will be very hard to bring them back. And, and all of these things are risks on the transition path. But so, so the risk is, is not the climate, whether climate change is happening or not, but it's in the transition, how would it look like uh, and how do, we, how do we manage it? Will mankind come to reason uh, while we have time? And does Zurich have a perspective on how we should manage it? Well, absolutely. I think, again, I said it, it's much easier and much cheaper to prevent the loss than to fix the loss. So so let's prevent the loss. Let's take action today uh, and, and let's avoid the most catastrophic potential outcomes that we see on the horizon. You know, honestly, I, I, I don't want to know how bad bad looks like, because once we know it will be too late. And I think that's one of the things that we should we should all be aware of. I mean, we see the glaciers melting. Now, once they're gone, we, we have all kinds of interesting impacts that we will have to deal with. And I think there's a risk because we got used to seeing the glaciers melting. And it will take some more time. And, and it's very easy to be complacent and say, well, they're melting for so long. They will melt for a long time still. Uh, but it will come to an end. And I think as, as as societies, we just have to get aware that kind of we have certain behavioral patterns that are not sustainable. And, and we think that we should we should try to position us into a more sustainable way. And that includes a lot of aspects. At the same time, this will be the next industrial revolution. And, and as such offers endless opportunity. Every industrial revolution has led to kind of more jobs, has led to higher st- standards of living. And this one, I'm very optimistic, will not be different. Now, every industrial revolution has also destroyed 
kind of jobs mm-hmm. in the beginning. And that's part of the game. And we talk about digitalization the same way. I think climate transition falls into the same category because it is there is lots of opportunities. But obviously, the incumbents of the old carbon economy uh, fight their position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I've I've often heard it referred to using the transition term before, but as a new industrial revolution, that's that's a perspective I've not heard used before. Can you dig into that a little more? Well, look, since since the beginning of the various industrial revolutions, our our economies were principally carbon based. Now, even before climate change became a big issue, it was clear that that was non-sustainable behavior because we all knew that there was only so much oil to be kind of had. And, and, and so it was always clear that there would be an ending. And the, kind of some of us remember the, the peak oil discussion. Mm. The peak oil discussion wasn't driven by climate concerns, but economic concerns. Now, I think all we need to do is to recognize that a carbon economy is not sustainable and accelerate the development. Uh, and, and it will need technological change. It will need change in behaviors. But I'm working for a company that was in business before cars started to circulate. Right. Now, why wouldn't we be in business when cars no longer circulate? And I'm not suggesting cars need to disappear, but the world will change in a way that we cannot imagine. The, the, the people that have founded Zurich had no, I think they had, they had no vision on how the world would look in 2020. And, and we don't understand how the world looks in 2050. And, and that's just the nature of the development of our societies. But we should, we should be optimistic about it and, and basically let the change happen and sometimes even instill the change. And as a company, I mean, look, if you're not positioned to kind of benefit from the next wave of strategic development, you become irrelevant. Mm. And if, if there is one thing, Zurich doesn't want this to become irrelevant for our customers. <laughs> no, no doubt. But uh, you, I think I think you're large enough in insurance as an industry is not going away. So I, I don't think you're in any great risk there yourselves. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Well, I think we're we're all at risk if you're missing the boat, and rightly so. You know, I have a firm belief that one of the strengths of our of our uh, economic system is is survival of the fittest. And and if you if you're no longer relevant for your customers, you disappear. And many great names have disappeared in the history of kind of our economies. And many of today's great names will disappear in the future. And and that's very healthy. Because yeah. it keeps us on our toes. Yeah. 
True, true. And you mentioned 2050 and how it's hard to visualize what the world of 2050 will be like. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you mean more from a technological perspective than a climate perspective. How do we plan for a world of 2050 when we don't know what it's going to look like? By being very open-minded and humble. And, you know, I mean, I think we're, we're both uh, old enough to remember 1990. And it's very healthy to go back in time uh, the same distance. Hmm. And if we think about 1990, it was just when the Iron Curtain fell, Germany reunited, something called the Internet started to be talked about a lot. Uh, people had car phones. Actually, in Switzerland, they're still called kind of car phones, the uh. mobile phones, because <laughs> that was the brand name right. that the biggest provider used. And, and that was the environment 30 years ago. I mean... What did we know when we talked about mail? We made we, we meant a, a kind of staple of papers on our on our desk, and and that's thirty years back. Thirty years forward, believing that change is, is accelerating, kind of it will be more dramatic than that. And so, if we're humble and open minded, we're well prepared. We should not, and and I think that's the risk is being deterministic about the future. We should not try to make decisions today how the world has to act in 2050. So what should we do to make sure we have an impactful transition? I think we should we should do, interestingly enough, what we've very successfully done about the vaccines in the COVID crisis, where we set out the price and said, hey, guys, go figure it out. And hundreds of attempts were started and a few were very successful. Most of them actually failed. And, and I think the problem is the same here. We should incentivize people to go find new technology by giving them the certainty that they can, that they're relevant in the future. And I think the best way to do that is put a price to carbon consumption, because through that, through price signals, the market will start to think about alternatives very easily, very easily. Always had done that mm. and always will do that. You do find, I mean, there is a there is a carbon price in Europe with the EU ETS scheme and in certain other geographies as well. But somewhere like the uh, United States, for example, there's an enormous political aversion to putting any form of a, a tax on carbon or a price on carbon. How, how do you overcome something like that in such a large market? I mean, if it was if it was something small, like a tiny country like Switzerland or Ireland, where I'm from, no one would give a damn, but, you know, America is such a huge player. Well, two answers. First, there's a reason why I'm a risk manager and not a politician. <laughs> and second, being Swiss, who am I to lecture the Americans? I mean, we had a popular vote that turned out the carbon legislation. And by the way, that, that would have led to a very modest increase in gas prices actually an increase that is lower than the fluctuation that we've just seen from OPEC behavior. Right. But there was a campaign that said driving a car only for the rich. And that resonated with people. Right. Now, uh, it's, it's, it is a very difficult one because the transition is not only technology, it, it's only it, there is also a societal part to it. And and I mean, we all know kind of how we defended coal mines in Europe 
how one very big economy still pumps billions into coal mines in subsidies. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's very hard to blame the man on the street for, for not recognizing the problem. And how do we fix that? Uh, that's, I mean, you need to be an internal optimist <laughs> to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, personally, I think the recognition will become unavoidable. I just hope it's not very late in the process. Yeah. I don't think big corporate can fix it. There is there is a lot of activism pushing on big corporate, pushing on big finance. Uh, again, I, I'm falling back to being Swiss. I think you need you need a democratic legitimation. You you cannot you cannot change society without the consent of society. Yeah. Not in my understanding of the world. And so we need to get to that consent. But the problem is, if you have a defensive perspective, you talk about what you may lose. You may lose the right to burn oil to heat your house. That's the wrong approach. Make it expensive. And people will see that there is much smarter ways to heat your house. First, you could actually insulate it, so you need to heat it less. But you need signals, and and then people can take positive action. I think it's very important that we get into a positive mode of opportunity and and kind of shaping the future. our societies, and that's a comment way beyond global warming, our societies, especially in Europe, have started to focus on defending the past. And that's that's a deep issue that we're having. That, yeah. That's not the winning game for tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. We got to look forward, not backward. No, very true. Very true. How is uh, Zurich supporting its stakeholders in, in this transition? Actually, we are doing a number of things. First and foremost, we're trying to manage our own account. Mm. So, uh, I mean, that's, I think you should, you should always do your own homework before you lecture other people. Yeah. Uh, That's just good practice. Now, uh, granted, it's relatively easy for an insurance company, indeed. Uh, but still, we, we need to do it. Uh, we can do more. I mean, we have very interesting discussions about what type of food we serve. It goes down to that level. Uh, and and it, is, it is very interesting because you're confronted with trade-off and making choices. Again, problem being that often you don't have price signals because the markets are distorted hmm. uh, and, and don't signal a, a relevant price to shape the behavior. And then we're trying to work with our customers. That's very important to us. We're not in the camp that believes in kind of avoiding expo- kind of greenhouse gas exposures, just walking away from our customers. That's in our mind, not the right thing to do. We want to work with them and support them. And as long as we see them on a realistic transition path, we will continue to support them. Because there is a real risk that as an insurance industry, we just wash our hands and walk away from, say, coal. And we could do that. I mean, we could afford the loss of business. It's not all that relevant. Uh, And we've done in instances, for example, for new coal mines, because, I mean, God forbid, I mean, who needs new coal mines? Mm. But some of the existing coal power plants are, are today absolutely needed for the stability of the grid. And so walking away from them 
may look may make us look good, but it will not improve the outcome for the society. And that's very important to us. We try to understand what is a realistic transition path. And it's also one of the things where we see a lot of deficiency in the public debate. Because to understand what good behavior is in the next five years, you need an idea where we need to be in five years, where we want to be in 10 years. And there is there is a lack of consensus. There is even a lack of uh, kind of the scenarios out there. How could it look like? When can we re replace certain technologies? And that's very important. And then obviously we engage with our investors. We engage with our with our employees uh, because I think it's it, this is for all of us. And 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 I think we should we should all have a deep interest in it. Mm. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, the I mean, during the prep talk, you talked about the materiality principle and the importance of that. Do you want to expand a bit on that for, you know, everyone who wasn't on the, in the prep call? <laughs> well, look, it's again, at the end of the day, uh, you you need to do what matters. And, and it's very, it, it, there is a temptation to do kind of to chase symbols, so to speak. And and we, we try to be science based. Now, I'm, I'm saying we try uh, because it's not always easy. Uh, there is so much uncertainty uh, around, especially the transition path that that kind of you need to apply judgment and, and your judgment will be driven by some of your personal views and beliefs. But it's it's very important that we basically try to change the things that matter most and, and that we invest our energy where it matters and not where it may look best today or bring us the biggest applause from the public. And, and that's that's really important because we, we're in this for the long. Uh, and, and if I say the long, it's five, 10, 50 years uh, and, and not for the next quarters necessarily. And, and we're not trying to maximize kind of our report at the end of this year. We're trying to maximize our impact over a very long time. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit like what Lucas Joppa said. He's the chief environmental officer of Microsoft. And when I had him on, he was saying that, you know, uh, one of one of their ways of looking at it is to say, we want to be a profitable company, but if the world is being destroyed, there's no profit to be made by anybody. So, you know, you want to make sure that there's a, a, a an extant world out there in which you can make a profit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to put it. And, and at the end, that's also very important to us because uh, I would often I would often remind people that in order to be able to save the world in 10 years from now, we need to see year 10 as a company. So we need to profitable, be profitable on the way. We need to serve our customers. We need to kind of develop our business so that we are relevant to the world still and we can be part of the solution. And the company needs to earn that right each and every year. Very good, very good. We are coming towards the end of the podcast now, Peter. Is there any question I have not asked that you think I should have, or is there any topic we've not broached that you think it's important for people to be aware of? No, I think we, we, we discussed really about the, the, the major issues. And look, again, I'm, I'm a risk manager. I'm, I'm bound to see the volatility and, and all these things. Uh, at the same time, the world is uncertain. 
we have often a false sense of stability. Humans have that defect. They take a very short historic period and project it very long out into the future. And then they, they're, they're shocked that the world isn't as stable as they thought. And I think the same applies here. Our way of living today, that's a very short window. Uh, it has developed a lot even the last 10, 20 years. Uh, let's be optimistic about our ability to develop it the next 10, 20 years. And let's accept the risks in that process because it is a risky process, but, but there is no development without risk. And by the way, standing still is, is not, a, not maybe a lower risk, but it's certainly leading to disaster. Right. As, as another question has just occurred to me, as chief risk officer, I mean, what do you see as the biggest risk from climate change? It, it basically will lead to a massive uh, impact on our societies the way we know it. it I mean, we, we're going to lose large areas of land and, and so people will move. So we're going to see mass migration in a way that we haven't seen or thought about. And, and I think that's fundamentally, it, it, will, it will turn the world upside down, not only from a climate perspective, but, but also from a political and societal perspective. And again, these, again, history tells that if it comes to that, it will not be peaceful. Yeah, because I was going to say, you, you mentioned companies not surviving, but is there a chance of nations not surviving? No, absolutely. I mean, again, history, look, his, history is, is so informative. We often fail to, to look at it and, and, and kind of take the relevant information out of it. If, if it comes to mass, mass migration of whole populations, yes. I mean, the land... The, the, the political the political map will be redrawn. Always was. I mean, ours again. The false sense of stability. Look at Europe. I mean, a large part of the EU states didn't exist even. They even didn't exist thirty years ago. Fair point. That's true. That's true. Great, Peter. That's been fantastic. If people want to know more about yourself, Peter or Zurich or any of the things we talked about on the podcast today, where would you have me direct them? Actually, you, you can go uh, through my LinkedIn profile. Uh, I'm very easy to find on there, Peter Giger at Zurich. Uh, or you can approach me through our usual communication cha uh, channels that you'll find on our homepage. But I'm very happy to kind of pick up a discussion or provide feedback uh, if I can help. Fantastic. Great, Peter, that's been excellent. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Tom. Okay, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to know more about Climate 21, feel free to drop me an email to tom.raftery at sap.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe to it in your podcast application of choice to get new episodes as soon as they're published. Also, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It really does help new people to find the show. Thanks. Catch you all next time.